Today, I'm continuing a series that I've entitled Christian Philosophy Part 2. Part 1 was primarily talking about the way a Christian should have an attitude or their worldview towards uh, Christian theological type of issues such as the Word of God being inspired by God and God being absolute. We are His servant and we're supposed to submit to Him that God is a good God, those kind of things. In this second part, I've been talking about, first of all, how a Christian should have a philosophy or a viewpoint on current events. And we've been talking about homosexuality and abortion. We've covered those three things. The first thing I did was talk about how it's not wrong to have an opinion and to voice that opinion. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And I think that one of the things that has been very detrimental is that the secular media, the secular government, the secular world has basically beat the body of Christ back into the four walls of the church to where you have your religious opinions over here, but it is wrong. We should have a separation of church and state. You shouldn't be saying anything about God and morality and, and expressing faith things in the public sector. And that is absolutely wrong. So I spent a lot of time establishing that it's not incorrect for us to have a philosophy or a viewpoint on moral current issues. And we could go through everything, but that is nearly an endless process. What I want to do is to establish a Christian philosophy here that I think that if you adopt this and see what the Scripture has to say, this will lead you into having an opinion on all of these different issues and uh, it will make you be separate from the world. But there are things said in the Word of God, and I'm going to be bringing out a lot of scriptures on this, about where he says, come out from among them and be separate and don't touch the unclean thing. It says, all that is in the world, 1 John chapter 2, I believe it's around verse 15, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God. Love not the world. I believe that must have been verse 16. Verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's just so many scriptures, and I'm going to be going through this and bringing these out. But the world is going differently than the way that God is going. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, that I am not of this world. And now that we are begotten of Him, that we have embraced Him and we have become a brand new Christian, you need to recognize you are not of this world. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And peculiar there isn't meant to be weird or spooky or any of the negative things that we talk about. This is talking about that you are a separate people. There should be a difference between a person who has the life of God in them versus a person who has only physical, natural life. Boy, that is so obvious if you study the Scriptures. If you really have a a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Man, you ought to be able to contrast the way you are now versus the way that you used to be. And I'm going to be bringing out a lot of scriptures that will show this. But this is just a uh, point that is made all the way through scripture. 
that Christians, people who are truly in relationship with God, and I'm distinguishing because, between people who call themselves Christians who are only religious versus a person who truly has God living on the inside of them. There's lots of people that can't claim Christianity and they aren't any more born again and born of God than anything. They're just religious people. But a person who has a true relationship with God should be separate, different from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And before I get into this and trying to make this point and emphasizing this, which the reason I'm doing this is because if you really adopt that philosophy, if you see this in Scripture and if you get this mindset, then you know what? It's going to make you to where you will begin to question and you will begin to scrutinize and analyze everything that comes at you from a biblical perspective and this will help you in the way you raise your children. You just won't accept what the psychologist of the day say. This will affect the way you have relationship with your employer, the way you have relationship with your wife and your children and on and on. If you would begin to recognize that the world is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold and if you recognize that there is this spirit of antichrist and this ungodliness in the world that is being that we are being bombarded with and if you get I don't know if defensive is the right word, but if you get to where you aren't gullible, then you know what? You would question and analyze some things and it'll make a difference in your philosophy. You know, back during the 1980s, I went over to Hungary and this is while it was still under communism. And I was visiting with a couple there. They had lived for a year or two in the United States and I was... They were asking me what I thought of Hungary, and I was asking them what they thought of the U.S. And anyway, they had some really positive things to say about the U.S., but I asked them overall, I said, how would you characterize the American people? And you know what they said? They said, you're gullible. And at first, that was a little offensive, and I asked them to clarify, and they explained that, see, they were in their 30s or 40s. They had grown up under communism. And they had just learned that there was propaganda being shoved down their throat every minute of every day. The news media, the papers were all state-run. Everything was biased. Everything was from a communist perspective. And anyway, they had just learned that you do not swallow everything that you're told. But they lived in the United States, and they, their opinion was that Americans basically just swallow whatever comes down the pipe. If it comes across on the evening news, they just believe it. And you know, after they explained it, I think I would probably agree with them that Americans are some of the most gullible people on the face of the earth. And I'm basing this on my dealings with a lot of different people who just listen to stuff and they swallow it. There is propaganda being put forth. And if you are looking at the news to be informed or reading the newspaper, the average newspaper to be informed, you are one of the most misinformed people on the face of the earth. I really believe that. And I know that there's people who take offense at that and they think, man, I can't believe that you're saying all of these things. It's because I have a philosophy that in the Word of God, I can see we live in a hostile environment. The world system is contrary to God. And there are lies being said. The world tends to exaggerate, overstate things. Bad news is what sells. 
And I have got this kind of a philosophy from the Word of God. Let me just give you some examples here. Look at this passage in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Now, we nearly always take a scripture like that and apply it towards marriage and say that a believer shouldn't marry an unbeliever. But this isn't limited to. I'm not excluding that at all. I'm just saying it's not only limited to marriage. This is talking about in business dealings. This is talking about your friends. Now, I'm not saying that we all withdraw into monasteries. I'm not preaching that, but I am preaching that there should be a difference between people who have been enlightened by God, who are in fellowship with God, who have the power of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them, and people that are living in the world and out to just satisfy the lust of their own flesh. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the scripture says, "...love not the world." neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of God. Now, I'm going to come back to those scriptures, but I don't know how you get around this. The world is not embracing Christianity. Jesus said that beware when all men speak well of you, for so spoke they of the false prophets which went before you, that the servant isn't greater than his Lord. If they have pro uh, persecuted the master, then they're also going to persecute you. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The only reason you aren't going to be persecuted is if you live an ungodly life. If you start going the direction that God is going, you're going to be going contrary to the rest of the world. If you never bump into the devil, it's because you're both headed in the same direction. <laughs> you turn around and start going for God, there's going to be opposition. And for you not to know this, for you not to recognize that there is something wrong with you just being, having the same attitude, the same values... And I'm going to say some things that I guarantee I don't have time to defend and many of you will be offended at it, but I'm saying this because it's to your benefit. If it was just for my benefit, I'd probably shut up because I don't have time to defend it and I know a lot of people will misjudge me. But I guarantee you, if you're watching the same shows on television, if you watch the same sitcoms, if you watch the same movies, if you read the same magazines, if you read the same cheap novels... If you, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage in you, then don't be surprised if you have the same results as your unsaved neighbor. And yet, I am saying that the average Christian doesn't have this philosophy. The average Christian doesn't realize that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. That we are a peculiar people. That we are a chosen generation. A holy nation. Most people just are identified. They have the same influence from the world. They pipe the same junk into their life and into their world that, that the world does. And then they wonder why they get the same results. Scripture says, as you think in your heart, that's the way that you are. You may be born again in your spirit. You might have the life of God in you. But your life is going to go the way of your dominant thought. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says to be carnally minded is death. It doesn't say carnal mindedness tends towards death. 
It, it leads towards death for certain types of personalities, not just men, uh, if their carnal mindedness produced death or women. No, it just says carnal mindedness equals death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Spiritually minded is word minded. To be thinking the way that the world thinks, you're going to get the same results that the world gets. And yet, most people study the same stuff, listen to the same stuff, sing the same music, sing about losing their mate, sing about sexual things. They sing about hating uh, cops and all of this stuff. There's a lot of people that they think, well, you know, I love the Lord. I'm born again. But man, and then they're just out here in the world. I'm telling you, if you have that philosophy, you are avoiding so many scriptures. And this is one of them, that you should not be unequally yoked. Now, I'm not saying we retreat to a monastery, but I am saying that you need to have a philosophy that we are living in a hostile environment. You need to have a similar type of philosophy as a person who goes deep sea diving. You know, I've gone scuba diving only one time. I'm not certified, but I have gone 40 feet down under the water and used tanks, and I have scuba dived. And you know what? Even though I made it and everything worked, it was a hostile environment. I was not created to live under the water, and I had to remember what they had taught me, and I had to remember how to breathe. And if I got water in my mask, I had to learn how to clear it, and I needed to constantly remember I'm in a hostile environment. I couldn't just take that thing out of my mouth. I couldn't just take my mask off and try and breathe underwater the same as I do above water. You need to recognize you are in a hostile environment and it takes some special uh, approach towards things to be able to survive and thrive in that. And this world is really not our home. We have been born from above and we are in a hostile environment. And if you don't understand that, and if you go about your life just in a nonchalant way, not recognizing we are in a warfare, then I can guarantee you, you are going to be influenced by the world on how to raise your children, how to conduct your marriage. You're going to look at these sitcoms where people are unfaithful and they do all of these things and they fight for fun and they use it as jokes. And you, before you know it, you're going to be caught up in those exact same things. I know some of you think I'm extreme, but I think you're extreme. I really believe that there needs to be a philosophy that, you know what, you should be different. Not different in a bad sense, different in a good sense. It goes on to say in verse 15, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? A lot of people just write that off and say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. We don't have Belial today or infidels today. This is just talking about what concord, what communion should a believer have with the devil? And I can guarantee you much, much, much of all of the stuff that you are seeing and hearing and reading and being told is demonic in its origin. There is a spirit of Antichrist that is working in this world. There isn't a spirit of anti-Muslim or anti-Buddhist. You know what? The only people that it's politically correct to be against are Christians, outspoken Christians, not Christians who are religious Christians, but Christians who have a real vibrant relationship with God. We are the only people on the face of the earth that is politically correct to be against. There is a spirit of antichrist working in this world. And that is coming across in our movies, in our shows, in everything. You know, one of the leading uh, moguls in television, I'm not going to call his name, 
but I've read about him and his sister died when he was young. The Presbyterian church told him that God was the one that killed his sister and so he rejected God. says, if there is a God, I hate him. He claims to be an atheist and are sometimes agnostic. But by his own admission, he is out to change the Judeo-Christian ethics of the United States. And he has networks that are seen around the world. doesn't matter if it's India, if it's Europe, if it's Australia, uh, in Africa, wherever you are, his networks go into there. And by his own admission, he is out to change the Judeo-Christian ethics of the world. You are swimming in a hostile environment. And if you're trying to just take it all in the way that everybody else does, you are being polluted and corrupted and that philosophy is affecting you. You need to recognize that you can't have any concord with that. You can't have any relationship with that. In the United States, I've seen a poll that there's around 90 to 95% of all Americans believe that there is a God. Now, they certainly aren't in relationship with Him. I'm not claiming that they're Christian or anything like that. But the vast majority of Americans believe that there is a God. But exactly the inverse of that is that the people who are in television and in our movie industry, all of the producers and directors, it is exactly opposite. There is only 5% of them that believe that there is a God. 95% are either atheist or agnostic, and they have admitted that, yes, they are out to put their philosophy upon the American public. And see, we differ from other generations of Christians in the fact that we have this stuff popped into our home and we are probably more influenced, more exposed to the philosophy of this world than any other generation of Christians who have ever lived. And unless you have a philosophy that acknowledges that you are in a hostile environment, that you should not be unequally yoked, you oughtn't to be gullible, you ought to check things out. You need to have a philosophy that we are in the world, but we aren't of this world, that the love of the world is not of God. Unless you have a philosophy like that, you are going to just take whatever comes down the pike. You are going to be destroyed. And this is the point that I'm trying to get across. In the next verse, it says, In what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Did you know that the very terminology here is very politically incorrect? And most Christians, as well as non-believers, would take great offense over this because you are making yourself out as a Christian that somehow or another you are like a temple of God and other people are a temple of, of an infidel or of some demonic thing. That's exactly what the Scripture is saying. The Scripture is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 that prior to our conversion, we were all by nature children of the devil and that we had a spirit working on the inside of us in Ephesians chapter 2, the spirit of this world. I know that this is offensive to a lot of people, and they're saying, but you can't say things like this. This is what the Bible says. And I know it's counterculture to where we are today, but that's the reason that our culture is so deadly. I believe that what the Word of God teaches is accurate. But look in verse 17. Here's a command and a promise. Come out from among them and be separate. Now think about this. This is a command from God. Come out from among what? 
Come out from among the unbelievers, verse 14, those that don't reverence Christ, those that don't esteem Him. You need to come out and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. You know, what does this mean to us practically? I do not believe that this means that we are supposed to withdraw to the walls of our church and form like a monastery or a convent to where we are just separate from the world and we're afraid to get out there. The scripture says we're the salt of the earth and if you don't get out of the salt shaker, you aren't ever going to season this world. We need to be in the public square. We need to be in positions of leadership and influence. We need Christians that are running for political offices and we need Christians that are putting out newspapers and speaking on television and doing the news broadcast. I don't think that we're supposed to withdraw behind our walls, but there should be a separation. You ought to be able to tell the difference. We ought to be outspoken and we ought to constantly be letting our light shine even in the midst of darkness, even if it means that there's criticism or persecution coming our way. I don't think that this is by any means saying that we should be separate in the sense that we physically separate ourselves and we aren't there. God needs Christians in the marketplace. But you know, we should be separate. We, or you could say we should be different. There ought to be a difference. People ought to be able to recognize a difference. You know, this reminds me of a little story about a woman whose son, uh, you know, was... I forgot how old he was in this story. But anyway, he was a young kid and he wanted to go to a secular summer camp. You know, just go to a place where they swim and they horseback ride and they have all of these things. And yet, the mother was so very concerned about him being exposed to non-Christians. And, uh, you know, again, I believe that you can go too far in this direction that you wouldn't let your kid dare be around anybody who doesn't share their opinions. I believe that our faith should be strong enough to be able to sustain us. So I don't think that we just totally separate ourselves. But at the same time, I think that it is right to be concerned about taking a child who's only been taught the Word of God and been taught godly principles and just thrusting them into a situation where there could be all kinds of things. There could be drugs, there could be sexual things and just a lot of stuff. And a parent should be concerned about that. So anyway, this mother was concerned and talked to her child about it before he went to the uh, camp and prayed with him that, you know, God would protect him and give him boldness and strength. And even if people criticized him, it wouldn't affect him. And so anyway, she sent him off to this week-long camp. When he got back, man, he was so excited. He was talking about all the canoe riding and the horseback riding and the swimming and all of the things that they did. And she couldn't wait to ask him. She says, so what, did anybody treat you badly because you were a Christian? Did anybody make fun of you? Did you get persecuted in any way? And his kid responded by saying, oh, no, mom, nobody ever knew I was a Christian. And he thought that was a great thing. That would be terrible. It's terrible for us to be in a world where people are dying and going to hell and they're miserable. And yet we are exactly the same as them. You know, I honestly don't have a huge contact with non-believers outside of going and buying gas and buying some food and, and things like this. And we're around Christians. And so I admit that I probably am not working a job the way that some of you are, and it's a little bit different. But you know what? I hadn't always been a preacher. And I can guarantee you, when I was in high school, people knew that I was a Christian. 
I wasn't as outspoken then because I hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I hadn't had this encounter with the Lord. But even then, people knew I was a Christian. And once I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I got turned on to the Lord, the immediate thing that happened, I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And all throughout my training and during the time that I was in Vietnam, I guarantee you, people weren't around me but more than just a few minutes before they recognized something was different. They'd want to give me a joint to smoke. They would want to show me pornography. They would get in and start cussing and using profanity. They would be blasting everything. And I guarantee you, I just stood out like a healed thumb. And it's not that I had to do it. It's not that I tried to do it. It's not that I prayed about, oh, God, help me to go in and show everybody I'm a Christian. It's just that my values were totally different than everybody else. And I bet you that if you were to somehow or another go to any of the people that I went through the army with, there wouldn't be a single one that wouldn't know that I was a believer. Matter of fact, in my basic training, I don't even know how this happened, but I guess it's because I talked to people, I witnessed to people, I prayed with people, but I don't, I don't know how it happened, but the field sergeant found out I was a believer and not just a nominal Christian, a person that claimed to be a Christian, but he knew I was committed and sincere about what I believed. And he was a very ungodly man. And I mean, he used to blast God and curse God. He challenged God one time, if, you're, if there's a God, come kill me right now. And when nothing happened, he said, he said to me, he said, see, there is no God. And I just responded by saying, that's kind of like a grasshopper standing on a railroad track and saying, if there's a train, send a train out here and kill me. I said, you aren't important enough to send a whole train out here and kill you. That might not have been the exact right answer, but it got his attention. Anyway, my point is this guy, he hated me. He hated God. And every day, we had three or four sessions a day in basic training where you sat in a classroom and you learned about how to... Uh, clean a weapon or you learned about, you know, whatever it is that they're teaching you. And every class, he would have me stand in front of the class. And then he would have somebody come up and tell the most vile joke that they could think of. Or after a weekend leave, he would have the guys come up and tell about all the prostitutes that they raped or maybe rape's not the right word, but that they had relationship with and describe it in detail. And he would have me stand there and he'd say, he called me preacher. And he says, I know you hate me, preacher. And he says, I love to see you blush. And he did this for, I think it was eight weeks we were in basic. And three times a day, he had me stand there and tried to humiliate me, tried to prod me. What I'm saying is, I didn't do anything to try and let him know I was a Christian. It's just that my values were so different than his and when he pushed me with ungodliness, I'd push back with my commitment for the Lord. And you know what? People knew I was a Christian. And it should be that way. You need to recognize we are in a hostile environment. And this is saying you need to be separate. Again, I don't think this means withdraw into your walls, but as you're going to work, stand for what's right. Be a Christian. I guarantee you, if people worked alongside Jesus, they would know that something was different around Him. And if you are a Christian, the word Christian means little Christ, they ought to know that there's something different about you. So it says, Come out from among them and be separate, and saith the Lord, Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There's a command to come out and be separate, and a promise that when you do, God will bless you and God will prosper you. 
And there's just so many scriptures that say this same thing. In uh, Romans chapter 12, these are some of the very first, well, the very first scriptures that God ever supernaturally brought alive to me. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then in verse 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world. The word conformed there is a Greek word that means to be poured into the mold of. You know, as you go through life, Life just, uh, it can heat up. It has a way of melting you. You aren't going to exit life the way you came into life. You lose a lot of that naiveness. Things happen. But you know what? When I was in the Army, one of the, one of the best things that I ever heard, and it was at a crisis point, we all got our orders to go to Vietnam. And here were these guys, 18, 19, 20-year-old guys, and most of them were just crying, and they knew they were all going to die. And so they called a chaplain to come in and talk to all of these guys who got their orders to go to Vietnam. And this chaplain got up and he said, the army's a fire. It's going to melt you. He says, you aren't going to be the same. But he says, you get to choose what mold you fit into. And you know what? I don't even know if he knew what he was saying. But God used that. God spoke to me. And I saw this as a great opportunity. And I can tell you, I came out on the other side of Vietnam much better it was a fire. It was a pressure. And I changed. I changed dramatically during the time I was in Vietnam. But I didn't change for the worse. I changed for the better. I came out of there so much stronger in my relationship with God. And this is saying, don't be poured into the mold of this world. If you don't do something, if you don't exert yourself, if you don't make some decisions, I can guarantee you, you will be conformed to this world. You will be poured into the mold of this world. It's just, that's normal. That's natural. It takes some effort. It takes a mindset, a philosophy for you to recognize that this world is trying to squeeze you into their mold. They're trying to conform you to their way of thinking. They don't like people that come along and say something different. They don't like the light to shine on their darkness because it exposes their darkness. And they are going to criticize you. You know, actually, if you understand this correctly, once you start getting persecution, it's actually a compliment. And I know that very few people look at it that way, but that really is what it is. Now, you can be persecuted because you're just obnoxious. But I'm talking about if you are standing for the Lord, the very fact that people come out against you and persecute you is actually a compliment. It's like if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs and one that yelps the loudest got hit. Amen. And the people who persecute you the most, it's because you hit a nerve. It's because their darkness does not like the light being shined on it and exposing them. Now, you need to make sure that you aren't doing it in a mean-spirited way and that you aren't religious and saying, I'm holier than thou and condemning people. But I'm saying that even if you walk in love, Jesus is the greatest example and Jesus... God so loved the world that He sent Jesus and Jesus died for us. And Jesus told the truth because He loved people. Like in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, this rich young ruler looked like he was really committed to God, but it says Jesus beholding him loved him and then said, go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. He didn't say this because he was trying to be mean to him. He was trying to get this man to put God first in his life and he realized that money was his God. 
He told the truth, and yet that man went away grieved. He didn't respond properly. Jesus told people the truth, and people criticized him and ultimately crucified him. But he did it because of love. I'm saying that if you are really loving people, and if you stand up and tell the truth, there is going to be persecution. But you know what? God is going to prosper you and bless you. And it says, don't let the world silence you. Don't let them pour you into their mold. Don't let them turn your light off. Don't let them keep your salt from getting out of the salt shaker. You need to have an opinion. And you need to be voicing that opinion and living your life in front of people in a way that you recognize there's going to be persecution. But you go ahead and live your life. It, it goes on to say, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. You know, I've always said that that Greek word there is metamorpho. That's the way that I've always pronounced it. I have a talking Greek dictionary that I played this thing and punched it and it's not even close to what I was saying. You know, I don't know how to pronounce it. I only know a little Greek. He runs a restaurant. But I don't know very much Greek, but I'm saying that whether, regardless how you pronounce it, this word is the same word that we get metamorphosis from. When it says that a little worm spins a cocoon and then comes out a butterfly, if you want metamorphosis, if you want transformation, if you want to be totally changed, you've got to do it by the renewing of your mind. And that's what I'm trying to talk about. We need to have a different mindset. We need to have a different philosophy. We need to recognize that we are in this world, but I am not of this world, that the world is against God. The world is going to hell. The vast majority of people do not have a relationship with God. And yet so many people put emphasis on, on these other people's opinion, these expert opinions. And you know, I'm going to be criticized for this. I don't mean this bad. I'm just trying to make my point. I think some of you are going to really be helped by this. But I don't care how many degrees a person has behind their name. You could have 32 degrees and still be frozen. There's a lot of people that put so much emphasis on these people having all of these degrees and because they've been to some school, therefore their opinion is better than everybody else. And I don't mean this mean, but you know what? A person who doesn't acknowledge God, which is the most fundamental thing in our life, and there are scriptures that shows that God speaks to every single person that comes into this world. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. They are without excuse. God is constantly speaking to a person. And a person who ignores that, a person who denies it and even goes the other way to where they say that there is no God or they aren't even sure if there's a God. And yet they're supposed to be an expert that I'm going to take their opinion. I know many of you don't share my philosophy on this, but you know what? The scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's said twice in Scripture. I think one of them is Psalms chapter 53, verse 1, and somewhere around Psalms 14 or something. It's foolish to say that there is no God. And when a person denies the existence of God, when they can look at this world and think that it happened accidentally, when they can do that, when they can sit there and look at the majesty of this earth and the 
I mean the complexity of the human body and the mind and the way it works and all of these things around us. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 19, I believe it is, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech. There is no language that hasn't heard. God has proclaimed with a loud voice that He exists and people can just close their eyes and go through life ignoring the fact that there is a God or be total atheist. That's a fool. And I don't care how many degrees they've got. And yet, just across the board, most people take the word of a quote-unquote expert They go to the extreme when if you had a philosophy that you took stuff with a grain of salt, the Word of God, you wouldn't fall for the Y2K scare, for the swine flu scare, for the worldwide recession and the worst global recession in the history of mankind, which is not true, and all those things have been said, and on and on and on I could go. I tell you what, we need to put an importance on God's Word and let God be true and every man a liar. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. I've quoted this verse, but let me turn over here and read it in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 15. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I read this in a number of different translations, and some of the translations basically said that if you are filled with all of the love for this world and all the things it offers that there's no love left for God. You have no room for God. We are just supposed to be so committed to God that everything else pales in comparison. In verse 16 it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Boy, there are some powerful things here. I could preach on this a long time, but when it's talking about the lust of the flesh, this is just talking about all of the cravings of the sinful nature is the way it's uh, translated in some of the translations. Just all of the things that we lust for, all of the acclaim, the recognition, the uh, physical, the sensual things, the uh, sexual drive, and just all of this stuff that is so pervasive, this isn't the way that God intended things to be. Now, certainly God created us with a sexual nature and a sexual drive, but it's been so perverted in the way that the world is flaunting it, the way that they can't advertise toothpaste without bringing sex into it. It's just not of God. And the lust of the eyes, all of the things that we crave and desire for our own satisfaction and ego and the pride of life, the way that we take so much um, satisfaction in all of our accomplishments. You know, the Apostle Paul, here's, here's a contrast between a scriptural philosophy and a world philosophy. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talked about all the things that he had accomplished, said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, Pharisee of the Pharisees concerning the law. He was blameless. He persecuted the church. He listed all of his accomplishments. And Paul was one of the most educated men of his day. He was succeeding. He was in line to be somebody really special. But then he turns around and he says, All of these things, I count them but lost. Yea, I count them but dung compared to knowing Christ and knowing Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Now that is a godly philosophy. He's not saying that He didn't 
you know, acknowledge that people accomplish things in the natural, but compared to knowing God, anything in this world is like dung. That's talking about manure. That's what I'm trying to stress, that we need to have a philosophy that I'm not saying you don't appreciate something. But I am saying that we need to get to a place that we love God so much that everything else pales in comparison. And I believe that that's the point that Paul was making. When he said he counted everything he had done but dung compared to uh, knowing Christ, I don't think that that meant that he didn't uh, realize that there was benefit. He had learned the Word. He had memorized most of the Old Testament. There was benefit to that. But compared to knowing Christ, it was nothing. And I'm saying these things in a comparative sense. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 4. Boy, I wish I had time to study the whole uh, chapter of Ephesians chapter 4. He starts off talking about how that we are supposed to walk worthy of the Lord. We recognize that we are only a part and that we have to have a relationship with other people. Then he talks about that there are certain people set in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says that they are there for the work of the ministry to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. And what he's doing here is all talking about our relationship with each other. I'm breaking right into the middle of uh, this. And he says we are supposed to be... um, Well, let me just go back till that all of these things are done till we all come in the unity of the faith. This is in verse 13. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Again, if you were to put all of this in its context, he had talked about the ministry gift, what people call the five-fold ministry. They are supposed to be teaching and perfecting us so that we wouldn't fall prey to all of this philosophy of the world. I go back to the very first scriptures that I used to introduce this whole teaching. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. We are in a war. We're in a battle. This world system is destroying people's lives. They're lying to people. And Paul here is talking about we've got to submit to the leaders in the body of Christ. We've got to gain this truth so that we won't be susceptible to the cunning craftiness and the deceitfulness of men whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Whether it's intentional or whether they have just bought into their own... uh, They've been sold a bill of goods and believe it themselves. It doesn't matter. The truth is it's not, it's not liberating. It's not telling you the truth. The next verse says that we are supposed to speak the truth in love and that we grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And look at these verses. These, these few verses right here, there was a uh, few years back that I spent an entire year meditating here in Ephesians chapter 4. And the only time I ever looked at other scriptures is as I'd think of something here, I'd go search it out. But everything centered around this. This was the focus of my Bible study for 12 months. And it's one of the most productive times I ever had in the Bible. It, there is so much here that I couldn't tell you this in a year's time. 
But let me quickly just point out some things. Verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. The word Gentiles has lost a lot of its meaning to us today, but back at the time that the Bible was written, there were the Jews who were God's people. They had a covenant with God. God was dealing with them differently than He was dealing with the rest of the world. And the rest of the world were called Gentiles. Anybody who was a non-Jew was a Gentile. The way we would look at this today, since the Jews are no longer exclusively God's people, but the church is now the called out ones, the people of God, this peculiar nation here on the earth. Today, the way we would interpret this is, don't walk like non-Christians, people that don't know God, people that haven't been born again, people that don't have a relationship with God. And he's saying that there is a difference between the way that a Christian, a person who's in relationship with God thinks, and the way a person who's not in relationship with God thinks. I tell you, that shouldn't be a major news flash to most people, but sad to say it is, and sad to say a lot of Christians uh, do this. You know, I'm trying not to... Boy, I, when I start talking about this, this just hits so many hot buttons in me, it's hard for me to restrain myself. I think that this is one of the major mistakes being made in the body of Christ today, that the body of Christ is trying to relate to this world and become so much like the world and adopt it that we have now the seeker-friendly, the user-friendly churches that have decrease their sermons down to little 10, 15-minute sermonettes. They have entertainment. They have all of the flashing lights and the smoke and all of these things. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, methods can't change. But I think that people have gone super overboard in this so that really the distinction between the world and God are so blurred. You know, if... When, uh, I have people do this all the time and they say that in youth ministry you got to go out and reach these youth and so they bring the music of the world, the, the culture of the world and everything that they do into the church thinking that that's going to attract the youth. I'm not saying that we don't change our methods. I'm not saying that we don't do some things differently but I am saying that you need to get to where you preach the word. I believe that we've raised a whole generation of young people in church, that we've had children's church and youth ministry to where it's more entertainment than it is substance. And because of it, we've raised a generation of people that it's all about being entertained. They don't know the Word of God. They aren't committed to God. And so the statistics show that all of these children that have been raised in these children and youth ministries that were supposed to be so powerful and reach them on their own level... The statistics show that, I, I forget the exact figure now, but something like 80% of those are dropping out of church and going their own way because they never were committed to God in the first place. They were entertained. But now that they have to grow up and get into the Word, they don't want that. They haven't ever been taught this. As I said... These are my hot buttons. I have an opinion on all of these things, amen. But I think that this verse is saying that we shouldn't be like the non-Christians and we shouldn't try and bring all of these carnal and ungodly ways into the church to reach out to people. There should be a separation between God and the devil, between Christians and non-Christians. This is saying don't think like the Gentiles, like the non-Christians. Don't walk like them in the vanity of their mind. 
I've got about six teaching sets that come out of this phrase about the vanity of their mind. God used this to ring my bell. And I can kind of condense it down and say this quickly, that basically the world isn't using their brain. They are going through life being dominated and controlled by emotions, whatever feels good. And I hate to say it, but the church to a very large degree is exactly the same. We have been, we have been more influenced by our world system that we live in than the world system has been influenced by the church. I tell you, there's just so much that I'd love to say here. Let me go back to this verse. I want to finish reading these verses before I make some points. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles. In our context, this would be, Don't walk like those who don't know Jesus, that aren't born again. And they walk in the vanity of their mind. The word vanity means the inutility and transientness. Inutility just means they aren't utilizing the brain that God has given them. And transient means that they aren't focused. They are just, you know, a transient is what you'd say about a person that just never has a certain dwelling place. They're just living here or there or whatever. They're in transit. They don't have a fixed position. And this is the way that the world is. You know, when I was a kid in the 70s, well, I guess I graduated high school in 67, so... I guess I was already not a kid. I was uh, in my 20s. But anyway, back in the 60s and 70s, the thing was global cooling. We were entering into another ice age. And if you look at the stats, did you know that in 1940, there had been a, a pretty prolonged increase from back in the 1800s to the 1940s? And then from the 1940s, until the 60s and 70s, there was a cooling. And from this, they were projecting that we were entering another ice age. Now, some of you who are younger than this may think that, man, that is just weird because now they're calling global warming. But see, this is the transientness. If it was factual, if there was just a, a cardinal law that this is the way it is, then it wouldn't change from generation to generation. But those of you that are younger than I, if you were to go back and study some of these things, you'd find out that there was a global cooling and we were in an ice age coming up. Now it's global warming. And you know, I was just on the internet last night looking at some things and I wrote a couple of these things down. There's this uh, guy, Bob Carter, who's a professor of research at the Marine Geophysical Laboratory at James Cook University in Australia. And he came out and from scientific basis, and he's not the only one, there's others, has totally disproved and called this global warming thing a scam. And he put up the actual charts uh, that go back thousands of years and showed that over thousands of years, you know, statistically, it has been basically static. And he began to explain what he called the iris effect that when you have increased temperatures, that means that there's increased evaporation. That leads to more clouds. All of these clouds kind of insulate. Uh, anybody that has paid attention will recognize this on a cloudy day. It's not as warm as it is on a totally sunny day. And not only does it keep the temperatures on the earth down, but it actually reflects some of that heat back out into space and his point is that God, cre he didn't say this, this is my interpretation, but 
God created the earth so it regulates itself. If you do have a rising of the temperatures and that causes the clouds to increase, it, it keeps the sun from warming as much. It reflects heat back. And he showed statistically over the last 10,000 years that every time there has been a peak and the peak has gone up as much as 4 degrees recently in the... Uh, 1900s, whereas this peak that was reached in 1995 was about 1.5 degrees. It was a relatively small warming trend, but all of the people saw this warming trend and had been blowing the, the horn and, and crying out global warming and it's going to destroy the earth. So it was a relatively mild warming trend, but every time that has happened, that has caused the cloud cover to increase, and it is followed by a decrease. And sure enough, in 1998, there was a noticeable decrease that began. And for the last 10 years, there has actually been a decrease in temperature. I just read an article in U.S. Today this last week that the Northeast has been the coolest that it has been in over a hundred years of recorded temperatures. Now, the Southwest part of the United States has set record highs. And so it depends, again, on how you interpret things. You could sit there, and if all you want to focus on is the Southwest, you could sit there and cry global warming and all of this. But the point I'm making is, and the point that this Bob Carter was making is, that Temperatures go in cycles and the earth regulates itself. It compensates for this. And actually, this Bob Carter was making the point that we are headed towards a cool, cool down of things. And global cooling is much more damaging than global warming. And on and on and on we could go with all of this. It is just simply, I believe we need to have a philosophy that rather than think that the earth is fragile, rather than think that man has reached this status to where now we can destroy the earth when the scripture makes it very clear how the earth is going to be destroyed. It's not going to be destroyed until God says it's destroyed. He's going to come back and it's going to be with an intense flame and heat and it's not going to happen through global warming. It's going to be the judgment of God. But see, this, I believe, really speaks to the arrogance of man, how they think that they can change things. You know, I've heard this also, and I assume that this is true. I've heard it from independent, multiple sources. You can find it on the Internet, which doesn't mean it's true. But I've heard that this CO2, the carbon uh, footprint thing that, you know, they're making you pay money and do all of this, that 25% of all carbon emissions in the world come from animals. If you were to kill all of the cows, you'd probably get rid of 20% of all of the CO2 emissions. Here's my point, that people are just saying things, and I don't think that it is a coincidence that Al Gore led the charge, did all of this, and then started a company that he is making billions with a B off of for people to give a carbon donation to offset their carbon footprint. Did you know that Literally, this whole global warming thing has the potential of wrecking the world economy. It really does. This is not an insignificant thing. And I tell you, I just believe that if you had a Christian philosophy and if you took things with a grain of salt, 
if you believed what the Word had to say over just somebody because they have a DD or a PhD behind their name, that doesn't mean that what they're saying is right. You know, I have... Uh, boy, here's another thing. I might as well just get this out too. But the way that everybody's embraced um, evolution, you know what? It, it doesn't square with the Word of God. Now, there are some people that interpret the first chapter of Genesis and say that these six days weren't six literal days. They could have been eons. They could have been six eons of time. I personally don't accept that, but you know I'm not even going to argue that point. If Even if you believe that the earth is millions and billions of years old, you cannot get around the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1 that the Lord created animals, fish, he created uh, the animals that are on the earth, the animals that fly, and then he created man. And he told each one of those groups to bring forth fruit after their kind. It is an established point in Scripture that only birds produce birds. Fish don't produce birds. Birds don't produce mammals. They are separate kind, and the Scripture makes it very clear that we all reproduce after our kind. And even if you were to embrace the eons and millions and billions of years that are necessary for evolution, you cannot, under any stretch of the imagination, make the Word of God say that one species develops and evolves into another species. And evolution is, is dependent upon that. It has never been observed. You'll hear some people talk about it, but when you, when you try and pin them down and say, well, show me the, the step in between monkeys and men. It has never been observed. They will try and say that they think this is happening, but it has never been confirmed. There is nothing in reality today that shows an evolution. They will sometimes point to one kind of moth and say that this is an evolution from this type of moth into another type of moth. Or they'll talk about the way that you can breed horses and you take an Arabian horse and if after years of breeding you can change and come up with this type of horse. But you know what? Every one of those, they're still moths. They're still horses. There has never been, there will never be, there is no proof of any species ever becoming another species. It goes contrary to the Word. And so I reject it based on the Word. Some people think, well, you're the only one. No, I, back in the uh, 1990s, my information on this is old. But Dr. Carl Ball has a creation research institution in Glen Rose, Texas. I've uh, seen many of his videos. I've seen him on many television things. He's got all the PhDs and all of the degrees for those that have to have a degree before anybody's opinion counts. And there are, at that time, back in the 1990s, were over 3,900 scientists that rejected evolution on the basis of scientists. Many of them were non-Christian. There was one particular who was a Jew who had come around to uh, adopt this place, that there had to be some creator to do this. And there were over 3,900 at that time, and that's just when this thing was getting going. I'm sure that there are thousands of um, scientists who reject evolution just on the basis of science. Like, for instance, and again, my knowledge in this is very limited. I don't have to have an, a lot of extra biblical material because I believe the Bible. 
But I have uh, studied math. I was a math major. I've always been interested in this. I studied the laws of probability. And did you know that anything to the 10th power is mathematically, statistically impossible? And yet, for evolution to have taken place, there are so many variables that had to all happen at one time that it is approximately 10 to the something, I forget the exact number now, but it's trillions of power. Anything to the 10th power is statistically, mathematically impossible, and yet evolution is dependent upon something that is wildly impossible. You know, I've heard the story that if you were to go to uh, the Boeing plant where they have all of the parts for a plane and if you dropped a nuclear bomb there and had this explosion and the results of that explosion was that there was a 747 plane assembled and perfectly put together and, and trimmed out and everything is perfect, the chances of a bomb causing those parts to come together are infinitely better than the chance of evolution. And people talk about the Big Bang and they keep going back. Well, where did the Big Bang come from? Where were those original elements? Who created them? You know what? There is no logical way to embrace evolution the way that it's been taught and anti-God. It just can't be done. There is no explanation. People say, oh yes, these... Poor, these slime came together and lightning struck it and there was this bolt of energy. Well, first of all, if that's all true, then why aren't you able to reproduce it with all of our sophistication today? But even if, you know, somehow or another they could reproduce that and produce life and see something come up out of there and become a human being, even if that could be done, well, let me ask you this. Where did the promote, uh, I don't even know how to say these words. Where did all this slime come from? Where did the lightning come from? Those had to come from someplace. If you keep going back, sooner or later, some, something or someone had to create those first elements. And you know what? There's just people today that make you feel like you are less than a human being. How dumb can you get and believe that God just created the earth in six days? It's not a stretch for me at all. I believe God can do anything. You know what? Uh, I remember when Mount St. Helens erupted that people, scientists, were shocked at the devastation that it produced instantly. They were just amazed. And you talk about global warming. Mount St. Helens put more stuff into the atmosphere than thousands and thousands of years of man-made stuff and it did affect the climate and there were some things but you know what the earth recovered from it and I remember that there were predictions made that it was going to be 10,000 years before we begin to start seeing this happen and this happen and, and scientists were just thrilled that man they had this opportunity to study a natural disaster and see evolution and things repopulate and all of this did you know within two and three years it was already accomplishing things that they said wouldn't happen for a thousand years. Scientists missed it big time. They continually miss it. They keep missing it. And yet people just go ahead as if... It's just amazing to me how gullible people are. Look at some of these facts. Here is uh, some information from the National Weather Service. This is from Wikipedia off of the Internet. And anyway, here's the prediction of the National Hurricane Center, Dr. William N. Gray. 
He's associate at the Colorado State University, and um, he's been involved with the government's uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And anyway, I won't give you all his credentials, but in 2005, here were the predictions of the National Weather Service. They said that there would be 11 tropical storms and six hurricanes. It turned out that there were 28 tropical storms and 15 hurricanes. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the year that that Hurricane Katrina happened, and it was just devastating, and they totally missed it. You know what? If a preacher was to prophesy and predict something and be that far wrong, be over twice, two and a half times as bad as anybody thought it was going to be, they would discount you and make fun of you and say, see, that's the way that religious stuff is. So, since they missed it so badly then, here were the predictions on December the 5th of 2006. They said that there would be 17 named storms and nine would be hurricanes in 2006. Here's the facts. There were five named hurricanes instead of 17. They missed that over three times, one-third as much as they said. And uh, I forget how many hurricanes actually hit. I think there were actually three that possibly hit, which is, again, one-third of what they predicted. In 2006, on December the 8th, they predicted that there would be above average uh, activity, 14 named storms, of which seven would be hurricanes in 2007. Here's the fact. There were six hurricanes in 2007, and they had predicted that there would be seven. So they were closer. But my point is that here are these people, and people have just taken this as being this is the way it is. And I've made mention of this earlier, but people say, well, when you're dealing with things like pandemics and, and hurricanes and natural disasters, it's always important to err on the side of caution. You need to overstate, never understate. Well, first of all, that is not the way that it happened. They completely understated it in 2005. And I don't agree with this philosophy that you can't overstate it. In other words, tell the patient that, oh, you're probably going to die, but don't give them any hope. Don't get their hopes up. When the Bible says... That hope is what saves us. Hope is a powerful force. Man, we ought to be getting people's hopes up. But on the, because of liability issues, a doctor's never going to tell you that it could be good. They're going to tell you the worst case scenario to cover their own self and keep from being sued and things like this. When it comes to these predictions, they overstate it. And people say, well, it didn't hurt anything. Well, it certainly did. Insurance rates went through the roof. And many people lost their flood insurance and their hurricane insurance because they couldn't afford the premiums. And then when the hurricanes did hit, man, they were devastated. When the swine flu came, they overstated it. And they said that it was going to be a pandemic. They already announced a pandemic. You know what a pandemic is? It differs from an, from an epidemic. In fact, that an epidemic is just localized into one place, one nation or something. A pandemic means it's going to be worldwide and it's going to be devastation with thousands and thousands of cases. The swine flu did not turn out to be a pandemic. And even though it's sad that anybody dies from it, that's not a pandemic. It has been overstated. Man, governments spent bunches of money getting these vaccinations together and doing things. It has affected the economy. 
There are people, there were schools that were closed down. There were businesses that had closed down. It disrupted the entire economy. Uh, there were um, destinations. Uh, I was reading about this not long ago that some of these vacation spots, especially in Mexico where the swine flu started, some of them had severe financial distress because of all of this. And people say, well, it doesn't matter. Well, you always have to err on the side of caution. No, it does matter. We need to be more accurate. And my point is, I'm not trying to just rag on everybody, but I'm saying that there is this gullibleness. Somehow or another, we have embraced a philosophy that people who are quote-unquote scientists, people who are quote-unquote journalists, people who are supposed to be leaders and experts, we just get to where we exalt their word above the word of God, above anybody else, above reason above what history has proved. And I'm telling you if, you, if you have that type of a philosophy, you're headed for destruction. I remember when Y2K was a major issue. And I remember that Christians were predicting that this was the beginning of the tribulation period, that everything was going to shut down. We were going to go into total anarchy. You were supposed to be buying food and stockpiling it and also getting weapons so that you could kill your neighbors when they came over trying to get your food. They taught on self-defense and Christians were supposed to be killing people in the name of the Lord to protect their family. They were crying and all these things were happening. And there were people that weren't just saying this is a possibility. There were people predicting in the name of the Lord this is going to happen. You know, there's a number of things that just didn't bear witness with me. Number one, the Lord had told me to go on television, and I was scheduled to go on television January the 3rd, 2000. And if the Y2K and this computer problem happened the way it was predicted, I couldn't have been on television January the 3rd. So it was inconsistent with what I felt God had told me in my heart. Plus, I was really, really, I have a philosophy that God doesn't want me hoarding food and letting my neighbors starve. And when they begin to starve and want to come get my food, he doesn't want me to kill them in the name of the Lord. That just is inconsistent with so much that the Word teaches. And so because I had a Christian philosophy, where if you want to prosper, give, and it shall be given unto you. Not hoard, not take back not hold back, not kill somebody because you are going to feed your family and you're going to watch your neighbors die. That's just inconsistent with so much in the Word of God. And based on nothing but that, I didn't have a word from God. God didn't speak to me and say, Thus saith the Lord, why two K's a hoax? But it was just, it was inconsistent with everything I saw in Scripture. People were motivated by fear, not by faith. There wasn't joy. The Bible says in James chapter 3 that the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And, it, and all of the things that were being said about Y2K was like terror. It was fear factor. It was uh, extremism. And based on all, nothing but the fact that that violated everything I see in Scripture about let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because of all of the truths I've learned from Scripture, did you know I rejected that well over a year, probably 18 months in advance, and I got strong and strong and strong, and I told the people, I said, if I miss it, 
And if the world comes to an end, I'll repent and I'll be as public with it as I can if there is no television, if there is no radio, if computers can't work, if mail can't run. But I will be honest and admit it. And I said, I challenge anybody who's proclaiming the end of the world, if you miss it, to be as honest and come on and just say you missed it. You know, I never heard any of those people apologize. I never heard any of them go back. Matter of fact, some of them said, well, it had been reset and they were predicting a second disaster six months later. Just like the guy who predicted 88 reasons why the Lord would return in 1988. And when he missed it, he came out with a book, 89 reasons why the Lord would return in 1989. And people bought that book. How dumb can you get and still breathe? (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing to me the way that people fall for things. And it's because they don't have an established absolute truth. Most people believe everything is relative. Most people believe everything is up for grabs. They don't believe in the infallibility of the Word. They don't truly believe that this is really inspired of God. They think it's just a vague representation and maybe you can read it and get a little good feeling every once in a while. But this doesn't apply to us. And this goes back to one of the very first thing that I taught in Christian Philosophy 1. That the very first thing Satan did to Eve was, Has God said... Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Before Satan can get us into any type of deception, he has to move us away from the Word of God and get us to where we compromise our confidence and our faith in the Word of God. You know, I unashamedly say that I believe the Bible. I believe it's accurate. I believe that God preserved it through the translations. I base my life on it. And you may sit there and say, well, boy, I I think that that's wrong for you to do that. You're narrow-minded. Well, you know what? It's working for me. I've been healed miraculously. Just this last week, I've seen hundreds of people healed. Deaf people that couldn't hear, hear. People that couldn't walk, walk. We saw people with limbs that they couldn't move and they were able to start moving. We saw miracle after miracle after miracle. I've seen my son raised from the dead after being dead for five hours with no brain damage. And you can sit there and say whatever you want to, but it's too late to tell me that the Word of God isn't inspired because it inspires me. I'm basing my life on it and it's working. And the people who are critical of this and and criticize Christians as being, oh, you're stuck in the Bible and you aren't facing facts, these are the same people that one year say that it's going to be devastating hurricane season and nothing happens. And then they say it's nothing's going to happen and it's devastating. And these are the same people that are showing that we got global warming and yet the statistics show that over the last 10 years it's actually cooling off. These are the same people talking about a worldwide recession and that the whole thing is terrible. And at the same time, because I'm believing in the Bible my investments in the stock market have gone up over 60% while the stock market has gone down 40 or 50%. I tell you what, it's just working. It's working for me. It's working for people that I know. I would highly recommend to you that you need to recognize that this world is going to hell in a handbasket. You need to recognize that, man, they are having to take pills to go to sleep, pills to wake up, pills to regulate everything. People are miserable. Things aren't working in the world. In case you haven't heard, man, it is a dangerous situation. 
I mean, if nothing else, life is a terminal experience. Even if you live a relatively charmed life, every one of us, unless Jesus comes back first, are headed for a graveyard. We are all in the process of dying. You need to have something that is bigger than you to hold on to. You need to have something that has been proven over the centuries. And, and I guarantee you, God's Word, faith in God, true faith. You know, I'm just as much against religion as anybody is. There's no atheist or agnostic that hates religion more than I do. But there is a true Christianity. There is a true relationship with God. And I recommend it completely. And all of our philosophy, all of our way of thinking needs to be founded right here on this book, on the Bible. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says, Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to get to the place to where I'm not out. I don't hate anybody. I'm not against anybody. But you know what? I don't exalt people. If they counter the Word of God, then you know what? Their opinion just doesn't mean that much to me. And I know that there's a lot of people that think I'm narrow-minded. Well, you know what? It's working. Until you get better results than I'm getting, maybe you ought to consider being a little bit more narrow-minded, focused on the Word of God and believing in it. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. And most people, it's just all... Their, their whole life is in flux. They have no anchor to hold to. But you know, there are truths in my life that are established based on the Word of God. I've lived my life on them. I've seen them work. And my life is founded on this. The Scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will never pass away. You know what? If I was to try and build me some fortress on a mountain, there's some day that a mountain's going to be gone. But when I build my life on the Word of God, it'll never fail. It's forever settled. God created the heavens and the earth by His Word. He spoke them into existence. And Hebrews 1.3 says, By Him all things consist... His Word holds everything together. And my philosophy is that I believe God, and I believe that He gave us His Word. There's so many reasons to believe that, but people died to get this book into translation. People have given their lives for it. People have been burned at the stake and put on the rack and things. They didn't do that for your news broadcast that you believe in 100%. Those people who have a Ph.D. behind their name and are discounting everything that the Bible says, they haven't offered their life. They haven't suffered persecution for their beliefs. This has been proven over time. I believe it's been confirmed, and it's most importantly in my heart, it's been confirmed to me. I still hold to the Word of God as being accurate. God's the one that created everything. He is not behind the times. We are in our own sophistication getting away from just things that are simple and obvious to anybody that 